This is Chapter 109 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we welcome the warmer weather with a couple of sure signs of summer, beach reads and baseball. You hear that? That's the sound of summer calling. And around here, that means it's time for beach reads. For those of you not in the know, we'll pick a book every week between now and Labor Day that's perfect for whatever beach, city, international, staycation getaway you have planned. Although, aren't all books perfect for vacation? But I digress. We kick things off with my ex-best friend's wedding. Set in the Outer Banks, the story revolves around a damaged friendship and a wedding dress with a long history. Author Wendy Wax picks up the story from there. Two former best friends, Lauren and Brianna, who first met in kindergarten and discovered they were born on the same day and, and thought that made them sisters. And also Lauren's mother, Kendra, who mothers them both. So as girls, they fall in love with reading from the time they can do that in books. And so they begin making up stories, plotting them together. They share this dream of one day going to New York after college and becoming you know, famous authors. But when that day finally comes, Brie backs out at the last minute. She stays on the Outer Banks. She marries, actually, Lauren's former boyfriend and tries to build the family she never had. She also buys an indie bookstore there where she worked and starts to work on a novel of her own. But Lauren got on that bus, went to New York and followed their dream um, with dogged determination. And her first published novel, which is based on an idea that she and Brie originally brainstormed together, becomes a bestseller and their friendship is over. So um, that's that story. The book really begins the days before Lauren and Brianna turn 40. They breeze dealing with a marriage that hasn't quite delivered on its happily ever after and running the bookstore while trying to finish the novel everybody knows she's been working on now for 15 years. And Lauren is the queen of beach reads. Um, on her birthday, she gets an unexpected marriage proposal that sends her back to the Outer Banks, her former best friend, whom her mother is still mothering, and the family wedding dress that she never thought she'd wear. That's quite a setup, huh? It is quite a setup, and I love that the dress is always in caps throughout throughout the whole book. (laughs) Well, it is, and and I I think, as you may know, it actually was inspired by a wedding dress that was in my, is, was in my family for generations. Um, it actually, the portrait of my Aunt Lois in it hung over my grandmother's bed her entire life. And, um, I, you know, it's one of those things, I think, for writers that I didn't sit down and say, oh, I think I'll write a book that includes the family wedding dress. It was one of those things that really just presented itself. I didn't even realize how much of an impact that portrait and, and the story of that dress had had on me. So it was really interesting. It it sort of took over in a way. And there's also something about weddings that dredge up a lot of drama and a lot of old feelings. <laughs> that is very true, I have to say. <laughs> and I have to say also less happily, this, this um, book was also inspired by a friendship um, that was um, lost and never really repaired. So writing this book in that way also... Um, 
you know, I, I lived a lot of that and, and knowing what it really meant to, to once again, be with someone that had been, you know, that person that you could say anything to, and now had to be so careful with was, was also um, an interesting thing to do. Do you think that friend will know if they read this book? Um, well, I seriously doubt that friend will read this book, <laughs> but I, I actually did try to mend fences I, while I was working on this story. Um, I kept thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I, it's terrible that we're, you know, not close anymore and that I'm writing all of this and it's dredging all of that up. And I did reach out and, um, boy, you're the only person I've mentioned this to, but, but in reality, um, she let me know that not all friendships are forever. And, um, so, yeah, I don't think she'll be reading it. Oh, that's too bad. My mom always had a saying, she, whenever, you know, growing up and whenever you went through a hard time with friends, that there are certain friends that come through for certain parts of your life. And it's OK if they're uh-huh. not around for, for for your whole lifetime. You know, that's really interesting. And perhaps that is what she meant and not in, in quite as quite a dismissive way as it felt at the time. But um, no, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And I, I, I also, you may know, am drawn to writing about the bonds of friendship that get us through the really tough times. I, I, I have done that over and over because I'm so fascinated by that. I think, um, especially for women, I think those kinds of friendships mean so much at, and, and at really important times. So um, I'm always, friendship is always a really important part of the story for me. Let's talk about the setting. Why the Outer Banks? You know, I I can't answer that exactly, except that it always looks so interesting. I, I grew up um, on the west coast of Florida, on the Gulf of Mexico, and I actually thought I knew what that, you know, what it meant to grow up on water or a body of water. But um, boy, I went, you know, for research to the Outer Banks. In fact, I'm going there this weekend to do a few pre-launch events. And um, boy, the Atlantic Ocean in that part, you know, of the country is an entirely different thing. It was just so dramatic and beautiful and, um, you know, removed from everything. I, I hadn't realized before I went there quite how far off the coast of North Carolina, it actually is. But I was looking for, you know, for a setting that would lend itself to the story. And it became so much more, frankly, than I even expected it to be. I love how the research that you did, the people that you met during that research, and, you know, the residents themselves, how their their approach to life, their way of thinking, and how they think of themselves kind of wove their way into your book. And you have this disclaimer at the end, just to make sure they all know that this is a work of fiction. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, and I will say um, bankers, as I they are referred to, are so passionate about where they live and why they live there. And I was so aware the entire time of somehow wanting to get it right. Um, I, I really, I met quite a few people there that I just loved and who really gave me feedback about what it feels to be a part of that place. And uh, I just, you know, you, you know, sometimes you come in as, as an outsider and you have only so much time to try to absorb as much as you can. And I, I felt I was so aware of just wanting to get it as, close to reality as I possibly could, even though, of course, this is fiction, as I pointed out, just in case I messed up. (laughs) There are a couple of, um, I mean, I mentioned a lot of local Outer Banks um, 
restaurants and places and, and important parts of the area. But there were two places in particular. We stayed at this very cool bed and breakfast, really um, almost by chance. It's called the Cameron House Inn on Manio, which is on Roanoke Island. Um, and uh, it was such an incredible stay that I borrowed, I fictionalized that in, um, it's called the Dogwood in the story, but it's it's very close <laughs> to reality. And also a bookstore there, an indie bookstore called Downtown Books, which is right around the corner and on the Manio waterfront, became uh, the fictional tidal wave. So I did not only use the setting and real places, but I also fictionalized a number of locations that really stood out for me. I know I want to be planning a trip to the Outer Banks right about now. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go. <laughs> you do. So another thing about the book that I loved, I mean, the story was great. It was entertaining, but it's also, you kind of given us a masterclass in how to write a novel. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, like all th- there are all these little bits of how writers approach writing their crafts sprinkled out throughout the book, whether it's, you know, Lauren, who's the established writer, or Brie, who's trying to become a writer. And you, you kind of weave these little little bits of advice in there. Was that your intention or it just happened that way? Well, I actually, um, you know, they say write what you know. And I, on occasion, I have written author characters because um, I, think, I think people are interested and also... I think people really don't know what it is like. And so, yes, I actually wrote a book, an earlier book, quite a number of years ago called The Accidental Bestseller, which is a story about four writers who help each other survive the publishing industry. And I thought that was a very real look. Um, In this case, yeah, I I did intentionally choose writers and I wanted to share what it, I think it's a fair representation of what it is to be a traditionally published author today. Um, And it is, it is not, you know, the glamorous thing. In fact, I I gave one of my favorite lines to uh, Lauren, who's the writer character who becomes, you know, traditionally published and, and a big name and all that. And, you know, I always say, you know, it's not the glamorous profession people think it is. A, a writer's life is spent largely alone, unwashed, and on deadline. So, you know, getting dressed up and getting to do events is a whole other thing from what the writing world is, is mostly about. And I know that's what you're gearing up to do now. <laughs> that's exactly right. In fact, um, yes, well, I am in my office at this moment, so um, you don't know what I'm wearing. But normally, <laughs> you know, it's pajamas and sweat clothes. That all is true. But no, this was, I really wanted to share what the experience is. And, and I will say, as you probably noticed, um, there is a lot of insider, a lot of insights into the publishing world and writing in general. So, you know, this is the perfect beach read, perfect vacation read. What kind of books do you like to read when you get some downtime and and get to get away for a little bit? Well, you know, it's funny. I I am what I always, I just say I'm such an eclectic reader. I don't have a genre that I own. You know, sometimes I hear from readers like, oh, I only read this kind or I only do that. But I read all over the place. Um, When I'm doing research, I read nonfiction. And other than that, I just want something I can escape into that will take me somewhere else. And actually recently I have, I was um, exposed to, I've always liked historical fiction. I like thrillers. I like um, a lot of different things, but lately I have had a real thing for 
fantasy and urban fantasy and um, play, you know, books that just take me completely somewhere else and, and frankly are really different than what I do. You know, I, you don't want to be, I, I don't like reading and being worried I might pick something up or that I'm going to be comparing myself to another author if, if what they do is too similar. So um, yeah, I just, I just like to be, I want to be sucked in and taken somewhere else and, and I want to feel good about it. <laughs> And luckily for all of us voracious readers, there is no limit to the options that are out there, right? Oh, it's, I mean, I, really, I love that. In fact, I once received a, an email from a reader who, who actually wrote me. This is back. I had a book quite a long time ago. I, I started with romantic comedy, and I had a book called Leave It to Cleavage that I wrote, <laughs> which is, yeah, my favorite title of all time. It was uh, about a jilted housewife and former Miss Rhododendron who must save the family bra business and the town it supports. So that was, that was the line that That's sold fantastic. that book, actually. I know, I know. I still bring it up, even though it was so long ago, just because I love the title and, and the premise. And, um, you know, for people who are interested in this, it, it, that's, you know, what's referred to as a high concept idea where you can take, you know, an entire book or movie and reduce it into one sentence and everybody knows what it is. Uh, it was very much a journey of self-discovery and a woman's growth and all of that, but lots of humor and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, Oh, my gosh. I don't remember why I started telling you that story. <laughs> okay, you're making me way too comfortable because um, I've, I've thrown any notes out the window, and uh, I know I had a reason for sharing that. Well, oh then I've, I've done my job then as, a, as an interviewer. <laughs> well, you certainly have. This is, all right, everybody, don't listen. To, oh, I know what I wanted to tell you. So the, story, the thing was, at that time when that book was out, I received, um, I think probably it was letters back then rather than email from a woman who said, I, I only read Danielle Steele. Oh, no, it was Nora Roberts. Sorry. She said, I only read Nora Roberts, but she didn't have a book out just now. And I saw your, you know, your book, Leave it to Cleavage, and I picked it up and I really loved it. And at the time I thought, oh, my gosh, there, there was a person who only read one author. Um, I, I found that, you know, I mean, I think Nora's wonderful and I grew, you know, grew up on her books, but I'm just saying I, I found the idea of someone limiting themselves that much, you know, to one, one author when there's so much great work out there to be sad. That's where that story came from. <laughs> well, I couldn't agree with you more, which is why we talk to so many authors who write so many different things for this program, because I think it, you know, it, in order to be well-rounded, you should be reading everything that you can get your hands on. I agree with that. And I also think no one should ever have to apologize for what they choose to read. Um, you know, I sometimes, because I write with a lot of humor, um, I, you know, I kind of joke that because I write humor, no one takes me seriously. You know, that, that drama and other things sometimes feel more important. But, you know, and there are people who think beach reads or, you know, whatever. But I think everyone is entitled to read and enjoy what they really love. And, um, you know, I, I'm sometimes turned off by the snobbery that sometimes happens, you know, that, that it needs to be this kind of fiction or that, or somehow you're, you're missing the boat. But yeah, I'm glad there's so many choices. I am glad as well. And I think that's a great 
place to bring this interview to a close. So I don't get you to reveal any more that you don't want to reveal. That's not in your notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So, so the new book is My Ex-Best Friend's Wedding, Wendy Wax. Thank you for spending some time. And, and this was one of the more enjoyable conversations I've had in a really long time. So thank you. Oh, me too. Thanks, Lisa. 1969 was quite the year. Let's recap. It's the year we landed a man on the moon and nearly a million people descended on an upstate New York farm for the Woodstock Music Festival, not to mention the nonstop protests against Vietnam and the Stonewall riots in Greenwich Village. It was also the year a ragtag group of baseball players from Queens did the impossible and won the World Series just a few years after having the worst record in Major League history. The latest book to chronicle that astounding season is They Said It Couldn't Be Done. Author Wayne Coffey sat down with our Peter Haskell to talk about the sports story everybody around here can't get enough of. For 50 years, they've been the Miracle Mets, but don't call them the Miracle Mets. First of all, what was the problem with being called the Miracle Mets? They don't really, uh, they didn't mind that people considered what they did miraculous, but in some sense they they felt that the word miracle cheapened their achievement, as if it were some kind of uh, otherworldly, uh, divinely inspired event, and they really felt that they absolutely earned this, and they earned it by um, out-pitching, out-fielding, and, and, and out-hitting the uh, Atlanta Braves in the NLCS, and then the Orioles in the World Series. So... Uh, I mean, it's hard to say they're really going to quibble with the word miracle, but they just they like to think that they they want it uh, the old fashioned way. This was a Mets team. They were an expansion team in 1962. They were horrible. And horrible. Historically horrible. Historically horrible. 68 wasn't bad. They were just normal bad. And 69, things just exploded. They won 100 games. They won the World Series. What, what was it about this group? And what allowed them to make that huge leap from, I think, 73 wins to 100? They uh, really, it all changed, Peter, with the arrival of Gil Hodges in the beginning of 1968. And as you referenced, I mean, the Mets were were um, epically bad. They were, they were the worst team in the 20th century in 62, going 40 and 120, which takes some doing to go 40 and 120. They lost 737 games in their history leading up to 1969. But when Hodges came in 68, from day one, he told his players that uh, the lovable loser thing is done. We've, uh, we're, not, we're not doing that anymore. And to me, he did the genius of Gil Hodges, quite apart from his brilliance as a strategist, was the fact that in very short uh, order, he changed the culture of the team. He really changed the Mets' DNA. And he, he said, we're going to play the game the right way. We're going to pitch. We're going to field. We're going we're gonna to outwork everyone else. Um, and he... He laid down the law, and, and he did it with—he just commanded this tremendous respect. And everyone, going back to Gil Hodges' days in Brooklyn, he was, he was a revered player. In my mind, should have been a Hall of Fame player on the basis of his—what he did as a, as a Dodger, as a tremendous fielder, a hitter of 370 home runs, uh, an anchor of, of tremendous teams for the whole decade of the 50s. Um, and then he came to the Mets, and— he really changed everything. 
One of the things that's interesting, which you point out in the book, and I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself, but you know about Seaver and Cleon Jones and Don Clendenin, but you had all these secondary players that had huge moments through the course of that season. And so what was it about Hodges? How much of that could you attribute to him? I think you attribute almost all of it to him. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, this was... The Mets were a team, I, I, I like to call them sort of the baseball equivalent of the little engine that could. If, if you looked at that roster, this was not an overwhelming collection of talent by any means. Um, but what Gil Hodges did, and not there was not one player I talked to who said, he's, they 100% agreed that if without Gil Hodges, we never would have won. And what he did was give every single player on that team, from Tom Seaver to um, Al Weiss, Duffy Dyer, the backup catcher, J.C. Martin, Rod Gasper, the uh, spare outfielder, uh, every single person had, had ownership. They were important. There was no caste system with the 69 Mets. And, and that was a, a, a culture that, that Hodges very carefully inculcated in the, t- in the team. He would talk to every player every day. He used them. He didn't let the guys just sit on the bench for weeks on end. And fans of a certain age will recall that back then when there was a mandatory uh, military service, player Mets were coming and going all year long to do their two weeks of military service. So when they played the Cubs in the middle of the year, Bud Harrelson was at Fort Drum in um, in the Adirondacks, and uh, Ken Boswell came and went. Nolan Ryan came and went. So Gil just did a masterful job of using his entire roster. So every single one of these guys felt valued, and it is, as corny as it sounds, um, it made all the difference. And maybe the biggest home run in Met history was hit by the, the, the mighty might, Al Weiss, 155 pounds in Game 5 of the World Series. And... Uh, he uh, he had the fastest home run trot on record because he didn't know how to do home run shot <laughs> trots. He uh, he that was I believe his sixth home run after a decade in the major leagues. So and it, but that was the 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 magic of, of Hodges. He just he got everyone to to believe in themselves, to feel important, to to feel as if they had ownership in in what what was going on. You know what I think is interesting too. Tom Seaver was a dominant pitcher who had a fantastic year. But it seemed like part of that chemistry was due to Seaver's mentality. What, what was it about it that he was not how seriously he took things and was not really above the fray? You know, he was, for all of his gifts as a pitcher, Seaver was an, an, um, a brilliant competitor. And, and his catchers told me the most um, cerebral pitcher who they ever worked with they would uh, I remember J.C. Martin said I would never ever shake off Tom Seaver when I would catch him because he knew exactly what he wanted to do and he was going to do it and I'm not going to get in the way so um, and when when he uh, he's known as the franchise and Tom terrific for very good reasons because as as Gil Hodges changed the the course of the of the of the culture in the Mets fortunes and Tom Seaver was was the game changer on the mound. In fact, there there was a, a kind of very telling moment, Peter, early in 1969. The Mets, of course, were so bad they had never been anywhere near the 500 mark. And in May, just about 50 years ago, exactly now, they were uh, they got to 18 and 18, and 
and the press, you know, it was the big story of the day. The New York Mets were 500. You know, let's let's have a parade. And and Seaver, they came to him after the game and said, you know, what do you think about this? You're 18 and 18. And he said, you know, we're not here to be mediocre. 18 and 18 is mediocre. We're, uh, we want to be in a pennant race. We're here to win. You know, you, you, you want to uh, celebrate mediocrity and, and the way the Mets used to be. Go talk to Marv Throneberry and Rod Keneal and... Uh, Choo Choo Coleman. And Choo Choo Coleman. Thank you. I knew we could get Choo Choo <laughs> Coleman in there. So that leadership and that setting the bar as high as he did, how important was that for that club? It was it was everything. I mean, it was, and again, it 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 started with Hodges, who had this tremendous winning pedigree, and Seaver would not, uh, he would would not stand for giving anything but his best, and and that sort of that sort of attitude is in a very positive way. It's you know it's contagious. It spreads through a team, and 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 his his left-handed sidekick Jerry Kuzman, who really never gets the to me, the the full due of uh, of what he meant to that team and and the tremendous career he had was right there with him. In fact, a lot of Mets would say that if they had to win one game, Kuzman was the guy who they wanted on the mound. and And his his story is uh, is just remarkable. This is a guy from a farm, Appleton, Minnesota. He grew up in a on a 360-acre farm, never played baseball growing up, never played Little League, never played Babe Ruth League, Pony League, never played anywhere until his older brother Orville recruited him for Orville's Minnesota Beer League team. Then Jerry ends up going into the Army, Fort Bliss, Texas, and by then, you know, he's a strapping guy with a, clearly a very gifted left arm. He starts pitching for the Fort Bliss baseball team. His catcher is a guy from Staten Island named John Lucchese, Jr., John Lucchese's father is a Met usher, and he says, Dad, we have a pitcher the Mets need to check out. And that pitcher turned out to be Jerry Kuzman, who signed for the whopping sum of $1,200 and won 19 games in 69. In fact, down the stretch, to speak to your point about the competitives, Seaver and Kuzman won 18 of their last 19 decisions as the Mets were... Um, running away from the uh, the free-falling, imploding Chicago Cubs. So you bring up Kuzman, who I was going to ask you about next, and you talk about his competitiveness. When you talk to him quite a bit. He's featured prominently in the book. Give us his perspective of what that season was like and now for him looking back on what that was like for him. Well, he, he came up in 68, and really, I thought he should have been the National League Rookie of the Year. was a tremendous success um, right away. But he, um, this is another guy who was just, who was all business. And in, in the heat of competition, the first pennant race of his life, he pitched, he pitched absolutely brilliantly. And I think if you want to know the essence of Jerry Kuzman, Peter, let's fast forward to the World Series. So Tom Seaver loses game one in Baltimore. And the Baltimore Orioles fans will remember were won 109 games and they were considered, widely considered, to be one of the greatest teams in baseball history. Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, Jim Palmer. Uh, they had uh, Boog Powell, uh, Paul Blair, Don Buford. They were just absolutely stacked 
And after they beat Seaver in game one, a lot of people thought it was over. And so game two, Jerry Kuzman takes the ball from Hodges. He pitches a no-hitter into the seventh inning, and the Mets win. So it's 1-1 coming back to Shea. The Orioles never won another game. And Kuzman ended up winning. He was the only pitcher who won two games. He won the clinching game five. And so this was a guy when it, uh, you know, when the heat was the hottest, he brought his best. I want to ask you about another individual who played a key role, veteran Ed Charles, the glider, whose backstory is really compelling and sad in some ways, but he, he got there and won the World Series. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, Ed, Ed Charles was, a, I, I have a lot of, there are a lot of heroic figures on the 69 Mets, and Ed, who 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 passed just last year, I, I, I had the honor of spending about four or five hours with him. He lived just in, uh, in East Elmhurst. I mean, you could almost hit a ball to City Field from where he lived. And, um, but Ed grew up in uh, Daytona, Florida, in the most um, horrific of circumstances, really, into, into terrible poverty. There was violence in his home. He was, uh, he was homeless as a young teenager. He dropped out of school. Uh, he, um, he had a really rough go. And he, but he was a gifted athlete and ended up going back into school. He, and, you know, he was a very, very smart man and was the, uh, a, a published poet who was sort of the Mets Poet Laureate. And... But it, it coming up, he was really, as were the other African-American Mets, almost like the baseball child of Jackie Robinson. And it was, he remembers a moment that changed his life in the spring of 1947. The Dodgers were training in Daytona, and Ed Charles, an African-American from very much the wrong side of the tracks in Daytona, who had had everything against him, you know, and living in a fiercely segregated Jim Crow South, where he, you know, he couldn't go in the restaurants, couldn't drink from the, the white water fountain, couldn't, couldn't do anything, uh, saw Jackie Robinson on the field with his white Dodger teammates. And, and Ed Charles said, just the sight of that, of a man with the same color skin as me, he said it was everything you ever dreamed of in your life right before your eyes. And he told a story later um, that how he, he ended up, the Dodgers were... Um, in St. Petersburg, and, and Charles ended up leaving the, the, the horrible circumstances of his home. His mother uh, moved to St. Petersburg to get away from his father, basically, and, and Ed followed her there. And he, the Dodgers played one of their final spring training games before heading north in St. Petersburg. And after the game, Ed and his friends were... Um, they, I think they were sitting on the fence because they couldn't afford to get in. And then they followed the Dodger bus. They ran alongside the Dodger bus to the train station. And then they ran on the platform and saw where Jackie was sitting in, in the train playing cards with his Dodger teammates. The train pulls out of the station and Ed Charles is running alongside the train because he just he wanted to see this man for as long as he could see him. And and Ed Charles held held tightly to the the inspiration of Jackie Robinson and and ended up signing a pro contract and got to the major leagues about eight years later than he should have and very nearly gave up and he just kept on thinking Jackie Rob Jackie Robinson did it and I can do it and he ended up finally making the major leagues at age 29 and game five of the World Series was the last game Ed Charles ever played so it's a pretty good way to go out 
And as an aside, that powerful scene you describe at the train station is portrayed in the movie about Jackie Robinson. That's right. 42. And, yep. and you see that, and Mets fans will see that, and they'll say, hey, Ed Charles, that's, that's the guy. That's the glider. Yep. So you set up the World Series. Game one goes to the Orioles. Kuzman comes back with a big game, too. Just, if you could briefly, the, the drama that led up to, you know, the big plays, A.G., Swoboda, et cetera, the drama that led up to that game five. Yeah, so with the um, it, just I'll take a step back for a second to as improbable as the Mets' run that year was— uh, and by, and by the way, right around the time Woodstock was starting, the Mets looked like they were done. They were 10 games out in third place. They finished the year 38-11. and 11. They just were on fire. Then they smoked the Braves, swept the Braves in the first NLCS. So now they get to the World Series, and they're playing the Mighty Orioles. No one gives them a chance. And in fact, before the series begins, Gil Hodges Jr., 17-year-old kid from Brooklyn, who's, who was a ball player himself and a good one, um, basically was with the team the whole year. Um, and he's sitting in, in his father's office before game one, and he's looking at the stats of the Baltimore Orioles and the New York Mets, who did not have a 30-home run hitter. They did not have a 100-RBI guy. They were in the bottom of the National League in almost every offensive category. He's looking at the Orioles' stats, the Mets' stats. He says, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? His father says, yeah, sure. And he said, how are you even on the same field with these guys? So Gil Sr. pauses a minute, he stands up, he closes the clubhouse door, and he goes over to his son, and he says, I don't ever want to hear you say that again, because there's a room full of guys right over there who think that they can play with these guys and they can beat them. If they play smart, we pitch, we field, we do all the little things, we, we play, we, you know, we're all in, 1 through 25, the way we have been all year, we can, we can do this. And, and he, was, he was right again. So... So they come back to Shea. It's one-one, and then and game three is uh, is Tommy Agee day. It, it he had one of the greatest fielding games in the history of the World Series, and probably single-handedly saved five runs with a glove that wasn't even his own. By the way, it, it belonged. He used a Johnny Callison model glove of Johnny Callison of the Philadelphia Phillies. So whatever that glove worked pretty well for him, though. And uh, he also homered off of Jim Palmer to uh, lead off the game. And he, he. So the, now the now the Mets go up uh, two to one behind uh, behind Gary Gentry, and now it's Game Four. Now it's now it's Seaver again, and uh, Seaver was very eager to atone for a so-so effort in Game One, which the Orioles won. And now there's uh, there are more heroics, and this time Ron Ron Swoboda makes what Mickey Mantle called the greatest catch he's ever seen in baseball. Of which a, says a, something. Yeah, which said Mickey's Mickey Mantle's seen a few catches. He's made a few catches, and uh, it uh, and again at a at a hugely important time on a, a line drive by Brooks Robinson in right center field, and uh, so the and the Mets win again on a on a perfect placed bunt by J.C. Martin where the throw hits him and bounces uh, bounces away from the first baseman and that and Rod Gasper scores from second and the Mets win two to one in 10 innings and that's the only World Series game the the great Tom Seaver in his Hall of Fame career ever won so that cut now we're at game five and by now I mean it's it Shea Stadium now you 
were at game five. I, I was at game five. Describe what it was like there. Well, it was it was a it was a Thursday, October sixteenth. It was a school day, but I was I was terribly ill that day, and uh, I couldn't make it to school. And it just so happened my grandfather had two tickets to the World Series. So funny how fate works. You know, I I sucked it up. I you know I got healthy really fast and went to uh, went to the ball game with my grandfather and um, sat along the first baseline and. And watched, and the Orioles went ahead three nothing, and, and now it looked uh, they were they were uh, Kuzman was matched up against uh, Dave McNally, and and after Kuzman Kuzman was so ticked off about McNally actually hit a home run off of Kuzman, which annoyed him to no end, and Kuzman comes into the dugout after they fell behind three nothing. It's, it's just in the third inning or something, and he goes up and down the dugout, and he said, they are done. They are not getting anything more off of me. That's done. Now let's go. We're coming back. We're winning this game. And he said he also wanted to do that. He did, it, it, was, it was purposeful bravado because he also wanted to send Hodges a message that in case he was thinking about going to the bullpen, um, don't go to the bullpen because I'm, I'm your guy, and I'm, I'm going to finish this game. And um, – and by the way, there were uh, there were th- the Mets. There were in 1969. There, uh, baseball fans may remember there were these there was this these things that called complete games, where complete pitchers games. yeah pitchers started games and they finished them. They finished them. They like finished they them. They did hundred pitches. Yeah, they had they had they had 51 complete games that year. The New York Mets did. They, Most, didn't, they didn't limit them at hundred pitches. Oh, no, they didn't. In fact, there was one game where the Mets beat Juan Marichal in 69, where Marichal pitched um, a shutout for 13 and two-thirds innings and lost on a Tommy Agee home run in the bottom of the 14th on wow. his 151st pitch. Wow. So, yeah, the Mets completed the game. Jerry Kuzman completed Game 5, and he was true to his word. The Orioles got no more runs, and, and the Mets rallied. They got back. They got... Um, they got a home run from Al Weiss, the you know, 155 pounds. The unlikeliest source, perhaps. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, and and that that tied the game, and and the Mets ended up taking the lead. Kuzman held on, and uh, and after and the, you know the irony of it. So in the bottom of the uh, the top of the ninth, the tying run. There's a man on first. There's a tying run at the. Uh, tying run at the plate in the person of Davy Johnson, uh, who would become the manager of the only other world championship team the Mets had in 86, and he hit a fly ball to left. Cleon Jones made the catch, went down to one knee, and then um, and then the the Barbarians stormed the field. And uh, Wayne I was Coffee among them. Wayne Coffee was among <laughs> them. I, I do that was my life in crime right there. I did storm the field and. Uh, I didn't go for the the heavy artillery. There were fans who went right to the pitching mound and yanked the rubber out of the ground. They did the same thing with home plate. And one of the bat boys, I found the bat boys for the team. Talk about a good summer job. You're a high school kid from Jamaica, Jamaica, Queens, and you love baseball. One of them becomes a, a Met bat boy. He said a fan actually tried to rip the uniform right off his back. It was complete mayhem. And I just got my four square inches of uh, Shea Stadium sod and, and got back to the safety of the seats. There's a, a quote from Tom Seaver I want to read to you and just have you explain it and get your take on it. This is from Tom Seaver. The greatest collective victory by any team in sports. What's your take? I would, uh, 
I'd have a hard time arguing with that. Um, I, I think there's only... I really think the only the only parallel that comes to mind for me is the U.S. Olympic hockey team in 1980 who who beat the Russians, who had the greatest collection of hockey talent in the history of the sport, and they were a bunch of college kids who had no business doing that and somehow did it on a Friday night in Lake Placid. And and the Mets, I mean, really, would if they played a bunch of World Series against the Orioles, did they win most of them? Did they win most of those games? Uh, no, but. They only played one, and it lasted five games, and the New York Mets won four of them. This book is rich with detail about the 1969 Mets. The book is They Said It Couldn't Be Done. Wayne Coffey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Peter. I really enjoyed it. All right. Who's ready for summer? Next time around, gather around the speakers as we share a ghost story featuring love found and love lost. Until then, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.